Welcome to another edition. This is Cross Functionality, the show connecting coaching baseball and softball, male and female, hosted by former college baseball and softball players. Thanks for making us a part of your day. We do appreciate that. As always, please subscribe to the show as well. Apple, Google, Spotify, Amazon Music, and our newest platform, iHeartRadio, and the app. And of course, watch the show, Softball Strength Academy on youtube let me bring in friend and co-host softball national champion at the university of alabama and current day renowned coach cassie riley bosha how are you doing great thank you i'm trying to stay warm we're just talking about it's getting a little chilly (laughs) it is i'm wearing my jacket today for those just listening and not watching the show it is a little chilly this morning Mm -hmm. in florida but you're you're telling me it's what 34 degrees today in new york yes it's gonna get up to like 65 66 so we're gonna be 34 in the morning yeah 34 in the morning which is I don't know. I, I try to wait till at least June, December before I see the 30s. I don't want them in. I don't want them in October. <laughs> right. It's a little bit, a little surprising, and and the temperature jump too, 34, and then you jump right up to 70 degrees. Kind of. Yeah. I don't know. But little, I'll, take it. I'll take it. I'll take the cold with the warm. <laughs> That's right. You know, if I've, I've always heard that fall though is the best time of year, and it's a great season. Have you done any fall activities, by the way? Any pumpkin picking? Any anything like that, or is that not your thing? Um, it 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 is. It's just things have been busy. So, but I'll tell you what, it is. It is so pretty i forget i almost every year how like bright the leaves get and right. so it is it is something if you've never experienced what the fall looks like in a northern eastern area it's at mm. least good to experience maybe one time but every time i drive to work drive home we get like five six weeks of it and it's, it's awesome yeah yeah i agree for someone who did grow up in the Northeast, like myself as well, I, I completely can relate and, and agree with you. Owning failure, that is today's topic, episode 14. You had a great quote a couple of weeks ago um, that I absolutely loved. You said, take a professional approach to failure. Again, mm-hmm. our, that relates to our main topic, getting comfortable with failure. Last week, we talked about pushing away negative thoughts and we transitioned to getting comfortable with failure. But take a professional approach to failure. I have to I have to say, you didn't come up with that. It was a great quote, great line for the show, but it was your former head coach at mm-hmm. the University of Alabama who actually came up with that, Pat Murphy. Yeah, you know, it's um, it was interesting. And I don't know if he, you know, sometimes he'll have a meeting and there's a, a very specific theme of that meeting. And and I honestly think this was, he kind of mentioned this in the huddle. And I think he was watching playoff baseball. It was in the fall one, one day. Um, and he's like, you know, I'm watching, I think he was watching like Chase Utley and I think the Phillies at the time were in it. And he's like, you know, that guy grounds out to second base. He runs as hard as he can to first he's out. He doesn't come in the dugout. He doesn't pout. He doesn't throw his helmet. It doesn't affect his next at bat. He's able to go out on the field, still perform, hit the home run to win the game later in the game. Um, and he's like, that's a professional and that's a professional approach to failure. And then he pointed out some of the seniors who, who do the same thing. And we had a, a senior center fielder, Jen Fenton, all American, but same thing striking out. It wasn't the end of the world. It wasn't this big emotional roller coaster that she was on. And I, and I, you know, I think he definitely wanted us, especially as females. I think people don't realize coaching females is, has its challenges in some ways, but just being able to keep everyone emotionally even keeled and not, ride a high or, or, or get upset up with too low of a low is, is huge. Yeah. Um, you mentioned Pat Murphy, you've mentioned a lot on this show and hopefully we will get him on this program. Failure is a part of life and, and it's not just with sports, not just with baseball and softball, even though those are games of failure. It's in basketball, it's in football, it's in hockey, it's in every sport. It doesn't matter if it's softball and, and baseball, whatever it stretches across many spectrums of sports and in life as well. Um, but with, with, Pat and you and hopefully we do get him on this show you talked about how he 
would go to games and he and at your level at, at mm-hmm. the level that softball uh, that Alabama plays at, in that level, the SEC, and, and you see it, of course, with Nick Saban. You see it with with some of the best college football coaches. You see it with Lincoln Riley. There's so many great, talented players out there in all sports trying to get to college that it's hard to sometimes differentiate between their talents, right? So you've talked about how Murph wanted to see a player fail and how they fail. And this connects to, to what scouts look for in pitchers. They love to watch, and I've heard this before, they like to watch three starts from a pitcher. Their first start, see them succeed. Second start, see them fail. Third start, see how they bounce back. And that's kind of the approach that your head coach took when he recruited, and still does probably to this day, when he recruits players wanting to see how they deal with that failure. Yeah, it, it was a very interesting comment that I've heard him make and then even my assistants when they were going out to recruit, they they knew somebody was good. They had them on the radar. They've seen them do well already. And they, they're like, listen, it's very easy to be the best teammate on the planet. It's very easy to be confident. It's very easy to do all these things when you're batting, you know, having a great tournament, batting, you know, six for eight and with two doubles. And they would, they would go on to explain what's not easy and what's not human nature and what kind of goes against the grain. What makes you stand out is when you have that bad game, you have that bad tournament, you let your team down. Are you still a great teammate? Are you still exuding confidence? Are you still even killed? Or does your, did you just completely transition as a player? And I always thought that was so interesting because anytime I, when I was playing and I was getting recruited, you know, if a big time coach was there and I'd, I'd mess up, maybe make an error on the field, I'd, I would, it would almost like compound, right? Let's like, oh, like I just made that error. And what I talked to my athletes about is, why can't we flip that around and be like, Oh, now's my time to show off. Now's my time to like showcase how well I can handle failure. Like, why not just like flip the switch on it instead of thinking like, Oh, I just, I just ruined my chances. You might've just opened a door to showcase how much better you can be than anyone else. Right. I always, you know, they're, they're, I love watching some high profile scouts or excuse me, scouts, uh, players getting scouted. And knowing that they're going to be first round draft selections, especially when they come out of high school, I like seeing how they they approach the game mm. and how how they how they ex- how they fail exactly but how every little nuanced thing that they do. I remember when when I played in college, we played NC State and I remember my I had dinner with my parents that night, the night after the second game and I said to them, "I can't believe their approach to the game. It is so uniformed. It's so professional. Every little move they walk to the plate, it's professional. They swing and miss, foul a ball off, it's professional. They get out it's professional. They're run like a professional organization with a bunch of guys who have that lack of a better term, professional approach. Mm -hmm. Yeah. I, and you know what, that's really where I think people think that there's these massive talent gaps between D one and D two or massive talent gaps one through five team in the country. And uh, the, the maybe 30 through 35, and it's not always that talent. It is everything else that they're doing. Maybe it's just, they're doing everything just 1% better or 2% better. Or they are, like you just said, they're viewing not just their time when they're in uniform or at practice as a professional, they're viewing their life outside as a professional, the sleep they get, how they even manage. You know, I always said we need to be professional students because if we had a game on a Friday or Saturday, we can't have, and you had a test on a Friday, we can't have you up super late Thursday night studying straining your eyes, being a zombie the next day, that does nothing for us as a, you know, I get it. We're a student, but like we needed to manage our time to even study sooner 
and manage our sleep sooner so that we could still be successful in both areas of life. So yeah, it's, it starts, it's definitely a mindset that how you do anything is how you do everything that professionalism should exude and bleed into all these other areas of your life. You know, it's funny because you can look at D1, D2, D3 type. And I'm, again, I'm just using baseball as an example. You can look at those players and if they're getting, you hear things through the grapevine, oh, they're getting scouted or you see things on the internet and yes, they're talented, but you always hear from opponents, oh, well, he didn't do this good or he didn't do this good. But the one thing that nobody ever talks about and says, hey, he takes an, a, a professional approach to the game. And that's really what helps him stand out as a player. Because again, he'll get exposed at the next level if he's not good enough or his tools don't develop. But ultimately, and you've been around professional baseball players in the end, mm -hmm. it's that maturity factor that helps them get drafted. Absolutely. I, um, I actually had this cool opportunity I've, I've talked about it earlier where i was with um the boston red sox organization ran this really cool event um where it was like a bunch of scout or potential scouted athletes in the area and they played a i think it was like a 13 or 14 inning against each other um in august and one of the guys playing on the red sox who's in the dugout was the cape cod league mvp he like led the league in and in, in hitting that that year so everyone was really excited to watch him very excited to you know i talked hitting with him um, and he hadn't played in, I think, a, a month. Mm -hmm. And he goes up his first four or five times straight up at and strikes out. I think he had four or five strikeouts. And I was so intrigued to watch how he handled it because everyone was watching. Everyone had this big expectation of him. And he was so even killed. And yes, even though the result was a strikeout, he was failing forward. He was failing successfully because he was making an adjustment every single time. You could tell he was getting on track, getting on track, getting on track. Boom. His last three at-bats were three for three with, with doubles in the gap. You could tell it clicked. And again, scouts, I think, were way more impressed with his ability to fail first and then succeed and how nonchalantly he handled that than they were with the fact that he you know, they weren't like, oh, what's his what's his bat velocity like? What's his what's his metrics like? That that wasn't the concern at that time. They were looking for other factors that really separated him. Right. And so much of scouting now is is trying to find out what that player is like, their character and trying to connect the dots and get inside their head. Be sure to follow the show at Jim Tara at coach underscore Cassie RB on Instagram at coach Cassie RB on Twitter. Let's get into some other um, things about owning failure, some some other things on the docket today. Um, owning failure in practice. You know, we don't do that. We're always in a controlled environment in practice as athletes. We don't fail enough, I, I think, in that in practice. And, and that really at times affects that player going forward. Mm -hmm. Yeah. You know, I can give the baseball softball example and, and Rachel Bakovec is um, she's made her, herself known as a female in baseball and she's trying to be a female GM and working her way through the system uh, of baseball. But she said, she's like, listen, our failure rate as a hitter is about 70% when we're doing really, really well. So right. we have a 30, 40% success rate. <laughs> Was how many times do you do a drill where the success rate is 30 to 40 percent and it's not to say that you have to challenge hitters all the time that they are failing that much but we have to sprinkle it in uh, occasionally if not once a practice where hey i'm gonna i'm gonna challenge you to fail 70 percent of the time right here and we still need to remain positive we still need to remain as a professional but even on the flip side i you know i have my background in strength and conditioning as a certified strength and conditioning specialist and um when CrossFit was very big, box jumps became this big thing. And we had these foam plyo boxes that we were teaching athletes to jump to. The science behind teaching a box jump is not always there because you can kind of cheat and compensate and, and say you have a higher box jump when really you're just, you have really you can get good. a running start too. Exactly. Just little things like that. Yeah. However, 
if you were to watch a high school athlete mentally struggle with having to achieve a box jump when they are like, when it's a little too high, it's all of a sudden you're like, this is the best thing I could ever do for this, this athlete right now, because they've just tried eight, nine, 10 times in a row. And I know it is not physical fatigue as to why they are not achieving this. This is, they are getting consumed by the failure, by the miss, by, oh my gosh, my friends are here. They just saw me miss. And, and I'd rather work through that with the athlete than do everything saying like, okay, well, we're following this specific scientific technique today. And then this specific scientific, you know, there's a mentality to this that we have to really influence these athletes with and who better to do it with than high school and middle school athletes at this formidable age. Okay. So my, my, my next question, because there's been a lot of pushback on this from both sides in the last few years, do you think chaos training is the answer to all of this? It, it can be it, like mm -hmm. where you're just randomizing the type, it, you know, and, and I get it in the sense of, I think of chaos training as, Hey, maybe we start our practice working on front toss where we're, I'm telling you, we're working on the outside. We work practice. up to it. Yes. And then all of a sudden we end our day with, okay, this, we're going to make this as close to live as possible. You don't know where the pitch is coming, what, you know, what may be happening. Um, infield practice is similar in the sense, like, you know, you're not just going third, short, second, first, but we're now saying, okay, ball could potentially go anywhere. Um, and I do think adding those stressors to teams is important. I, I mean, I, when I was playing at Alabama, we used to have to – infielders would face the outfield. We'd be, like, really close to the glass – or, excuse me, the grass. And Murph would point with silently dictating what runners were going to be on what bases. And then he'd say, two outs, go. And we'd turn around. The music would blast. And we had to like run into the infield as he was about to hit, figuring out who's on base. We have two outs, like music's blasting. That's, that was awesome. That prepared us more than anything for what we were going to face, but we didn't do that day one. We didn't right. do that freshman. You know what I mean? You, you certainly work up to that. Yeah. So there's a learning curve that that's, uh, that's a great transition because there is a learning curve to trying to own failure and understanding mm -hmm. how to do such a thing and navigate that those tough waters. Yeah. And I, you know, I think again, going back to a weightlifting example, failure is very much so a heavy weight, but if anyone's ever worked out, you might work out, uh, and put 135 pounds on the bar your first day. And it's dangerous to do that because you're not ready for it yet, but you train, you overload yourself with some failure, you take it away. And then all of a sudden you're warming up with 135 a year or two down the road. Mm -hmm. So the idea is that failure doesn't change. It doesn't mean that like we bulletproof ourselves or we can't be touched by failure. It just is the weight of it is not so heavy. Mentally, we have trained ourselves that it, it feels much lighter now. Right. Be sure to um, also um, subscribe to the show and email us too at um, uh, whatever, jimbopodcast21 <laughs> at gmail.com. <laughs> Um, let's let's move on to a, a great book that you mentioned obstacle is the way by mm. ryan holiday and i've heard of that book before i've, I've never I've, i'll admit i've not, not read it but i did some research on that book and i suggest i'm going to read it and i suggest that everybody kind of take a look at it and see what it's all about it's again obstacle is the way by ryan holiday and he talks about when we fail we have anxiety over those failures because mm -hmm. we're just afraid to fail. And that becomes a huge problem for athletes. Yeah. It's, you know, I, I see it a lot with injuries. I see mm -hmm. it a lot with, man, my dream school just sent me a letter saying that the recruiting class is full. They're not recruiting my class anymore. And it's, yeah. they view it as like, well, I worked really, really hard. Again, I thinking they're entitled to certain successes, right? I've worked really, really hard. I'm glad I you said that, by the way, I saw, I'm sorry to cut you off, but I saw something on, on Twitter earlier in the week. Somebody tweeted, you're not 
just because you work hard, you're not entitled to all of that success. There's other internal and external factors, mm -hmm. some in your control, some out of your control that also come into play. Right. We are entitled to say we worked really hard yes. and put ourselves in a really good position to be successful. But just because I take a hundred swings a day doesn't mean I'm going to go four for four every day. And and that was probably the best lesson I ever learned in high school from my mentor who said the game owes us nothing. And I was like, Oh my gosh, you're right. Like, who am I to say that my hard work is going to make me above the game where I'm going to just be entitled to success. And it was, you know, I, I anyway, it's just a humbling approach, I think to that, but we, we, we view it and we say, okay, I've worked really, really hard. I should be here. I should be hitting this. I should be getting recruited by this. I should, I should, I should, I should. And then we end up here where we got hurt or whatever it may be. If, if anyone were to be a coach and take a zoom out, we were like, okay, well, we got hurt. That's just going to set ourselves up to be more successful later on because we're going to be, you know, we have this unique opportunity to work on so many different things we would have never worked on. There's so many ways you can spin it. But the bigger that gap becomes of, well, this is where I thought I was going to be. And this is where I actually am. That gap gets filled with anxiety and stress of like, what do I do now? When in actuality, what this book kind of takes you through is that obstacle is your way. Your way to your perceived ideal of success is the obstacle. It's why can't we view our failure as like, this is exactly where I'm supposed to be. Because what's the alternative to just stress ourselves out and, and not do anything about it? You know, and again, that goes back to perhaps being present is the most important thing that we could do for ourselves as athletes and as coaches and people who are in a position of dealing with mental performance. Yeah. Sometimes I think that people work hard just to say that they can work hard or that I've worked hard, not so much for the success because if they're trying to be successful. Yes. They're trying to work hard, but I think there's an extra ingredient in there and it's trying to find out where you failed, trying to find out what can you do and, and what can be better and then attacking that weakness to get to the next step. Yeah. And you know, it's, I don't know. I, I, I got to the point. I wanted to win a national championship so badly. I wanted right. it since I was 13. I wanted it so badly for my coaches, for Alabama, for so many things. And then you start There's everything else mixed in that needs to get you to that point. Yeah. yeah. I, you know, you realize like how much can you actually control that? There's, you can, you can work as hard as you possibly can. You can, you can work to get your team to be the best they can possibly be. And that might not be enough. There might not be enough things that go away. There might be certain things that happen. So I started to realize like, okay, my, I'm going to have to hang my shoes up one day and not play anymore. And I want to be able to sleep at night. I want to be able to say there was nothing else I could have done. And that kind of became like, I guess the vision that I had where I was like, this is why I'm working hard. I'm working hard to say, I didn't leave any potential on the table, whatever my potential was, I got there. And that wasn't just physically, that was mentally. So again, failing people are like, Oh, I'm not going to get to where I was supposed to be now. It's like, well, yeah, you are mentally now, you know what I mean? As, as a whole person, there's like a lot of other factors like that you need to address. So anyway, I just, I think that's, that was always what I wanted to achieve. Was I going to be able to get to the point where I wasn't leaving anything on the table? I, I thought I got myself and my teammates to be the best version of themselves that we could be. Um, and then you have to just trust whatever happens after that. Well, how do you push those, those thoughts away of, of worrying and that anxiety of <laughs> the things that are the external factors, those, those type of nuggets that are out of your control? Right. Yeah. If there was like one thing that worked, we'd be billionaires, right? Like, right. Yeah. I think it's, I think it is finding what works for you. Is it talking with someone that you trust a coach, a player, a mentor? Is it journaling? Is it the rubber band on your wrist that helps you snap out of those negative self-talk? It's, 
probably a, the answer is probably a culmination of all of it. And it's also an understanding that we're not going to be perfect with it. Just like you're going to go train one day and not feel your best because you're going to be a little under the weather or whatever it may be. Mentally, you're going to have those days where you're not at your best, but then you're going to have other days where you're like, wow, something like that would have really bugged me or really gotten me down. And I feel like I can just move past it and, and move on to the next thing right now. Um, so you're going to see the reward of your work. It's just not a light switch. And I think some people think mental performance is a little bit of a light switch where it's like, Oh, I'm just going to have a really good mentality. Now I'm good. It's like, well, no, we got, we have to train that mentality because whatever negative thought was in your head about failing is, is now on a habit loop. It's like your brain is in this habit loop of like, Oh, I failed. I feel bad about myself. I say this about myself and now I fail again. And instead of we got to figure out a way to break that habit. And I think you spoke about that last week with um, an article you read about Forbes, but the first key, key was that awareness, like, What's going on in my head? How am I actually feeling? What am I actually in control of right now? Yeah, being present. Yeah, yeah. It's not. It's not. It's really not. Not talked about enough because something you know when we get something that's good that comes to us or successful, I think there's a lot of people, a lot of athletes have these big goals and these big dreams, but that takes them away from the present and where they actually should be and getting to that next step, which can ultimately get them to the next step of where they want to go. That makes sure. Sense. Yeah, I I still remember we had a we had this like uh, piece of paper and it had a red bar at the top. It said, where do we want to be? And it was yeah. SEC tournament, SEC championship, SEC, uh, NCAA national championship. Mm-hmm. It's like, cool. And then it said, how are we going to get there? And we listed what we could control to get there. And we just focused on those things. Of course, everyone wants to experience that opportunity for success, but you don't, you're going to like spin realizing like, what can I actually control to get there? So you can have these, uh, to do goals, I guess, or these like big, like, Hey, I want to be recruited. I want to go play pro. I want to do all these things, but then you have to have these to be goals or to be aspirations where it's like, all right, now what opportunities can I maximize on? Like, what are actual things I can control? How am I going to do that? What does that look like? What does that version of myself look like where I am viewing failure as an opportunity to get better and not as this crushing blow every time it happens? Yeah. And and failure should be a learning experience. Mm -hmm. That's, what it comes down to that's what people forget when you do fail okay what do i have to learn here and and how do i get to that place where i want to go it's it's just all a learning experience yeah you know what it's it's funny my my fiance jokes he played d3 rugby and i don't think they they like won three games in three years it was you know he says that he did not experience the success i had So, you know, I, he was joking with me and he's like, yeah, you want to learn about failing? Come, come ask me, <laughs> but he don't made play a rugby. Point. Yeah. Right. He's, but he made a good point. He was like, it's not, it, failing doesn't change. It's just how we view it. The second we stop viewing it as a learning experience or an opportunity, that's when it becomes a failure up, yeah. you know? So it was, it was a, it was a solid point from <laughs> someone who's experienced yeah. something it. someone outside, outside your realm. Right, right. It is. It's always. It's always helpful. I think to bounce ideas off of it. But it. It's true. The second you start viewing this as something that is, well, I've just. It's crushed me. I'm never going to recover from this, or whatever it may be. Instead of, well, how can I learn from this? How can I get better from this? How can I use this to pivot into a new direction? That's when it's actually a failure. But you know, before that, when you, if you're having that opportunity opportunistic viewpoint of failing, it's 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 more learning than anything else. How how can we? How can parents? Um, how can they help their kids and navigate this failure and, and own their failure? How, what advice would you have for parents um, instead of just kind of pointing out all the flaws of a kid's performance or a player's performance? 
trying to help them on the mental side as well. And in this case, owning failure. Sure. And um, I, I wish, you know, I, I work with so many athletes and I wish it wasn't the case where parents were pointing out so many of these failures, but, or their shortcomings or, Hey, you look, why does it look like this? And, you know, they're just trying to help. The parents are not trying to put their kids down. They're trying to help to get them to the next thing. And they're like, well, if I tell them what I see, it's going to help them figure it out and help them improve. When in actuality, they're really pouring these outcome or results into their head instead of process, right? So it's like, hey, I saw your hands looked really weird on the swing. Um, you know, I what happened to there? What happened when you when you missed that ground ball? And it's hard because a lot of these parents might have not played the game or may have not might have not played it at the high level. So they're viewing it from such an outside perspective and they're trying so hard to infiltrate how this feels. What, like how does she just take a pitch down the middle? Like where you and I know we've been probably at the plate in really anxiety ridden states where or the pitcher just was disguising something and that pitch didn't, wasn't actually down the middle. It looked like it was going to hit me and then ended up, you know, across the middle. Right. So there's more to the story there. So I just would encourage parents to just one, if you don't understand the game as much, have a conversation with your athlete and just talk to them. Be like, Hey, how'd you feel about today? Like try to get an idea of what, how they're seeing the game, because that's more important than how you're seeing it. Right. And if we're actually trying to help them. And then I think listening to the language too, and listening to, when they are seeking that advice to get better, or if they are just seeking like, Hey, I just need to have a conversation about this. Cause I got so many negative self talk, you know, things going on in my head right now. Um, so it's, it's the same thing as a coach is I can't coach every athlete the same because every athlete's going to need something different. Their son or daughter or daughter are going to probably need something different depending on the day. And we as mentors, coaches, parents might need to will definitely need to adapt to, to meet, our kid where they're at or meet their, our athlete where they're at um, to work with them on that. But yeah, help them become more aware. Be like, Hey, do, do we think that's a productive phrase? What you just thought there? It's like, well, no, probably not, <laughs> you know, and help them like find an alternative thing to say, you know um, I think that's probably the first thing is just how they speak to themselves. Right. Yeah. Greg Biggio once told me this. He said that it's, it's all just a process. I, I don't, I said this before. I don't know if I said it on this show. I hate that word though. You know, <laughs> it's, a, it's, oh, it's, it's a process. Yeah. Oh, it's a process. It's a process because I think it invites, um, um, I don't know, laziness for mm. lack of a better term. I think that it, it lets in that, Hey, the athlete or, the team, there's an excuse there now. Hey, we can lose or, hey, we can make this mistake and you hide behind that facade of process. But I understood it as it pertains to the game of baseball because you play so many games. And so I think that with if parents understand what that word means and maybe they don't use that phrasing, but mm -hmm. if they use that type of idea to help their kids own their failures, own their successes and are able to actually break down a game without getting into the nuts and bolts of it, I think you'll help your athlete progress. I, I have to imagine that too. And again, every athlete's going to be a little different. Um, we did a video. It was like an Instagram ad, gosh, like six, seven years ago when, when ads just started coming out on Facebook and Instagram, but it was, it was called, it's my fault. And you had athletes saying, you know, it's my fault that I threw that pitch that lost us the game. It's my fault that I got hurt. It's my just, again, owning 
and you're watching it. You're like, well, maybe it's not your fault. Like you're trying to almost justify to the athlete, like maybe it's not. And then it, the, the, the video switches where it's like, yeah, it's my fault. I'm a national championship, national champion. It's my fault. If I'm an all American, it's my fault. I'm all state. It's my fault. I won the game for the team. And it's the idea of, again, you, if you own your failures, you're going to be able to own your successes and they go hand in hand. It's just taking ownership of everything in your life um, and realizing that the world isn't happening to you. Yes, there might be certain things that you control, but but the way you view it and the way you pivot off of it is is what is in, in your control. So maybe helping athletes and kids understand that and take a little zoom out factor of like, hey, we're going to zoom out. We're not going to blame the coach. We're not going to blame the umpire. We're not, you know, let's take a look at how we're doing in our head, how we can control those thoughts and shift them into something more productive and next time we're in that situation, what, what, how, how can I help you? What do you need from me? What can, what can we do leading up to it? Maybe we, we schedule hitting sessions again, like being on your athlete's team and not just in that, you know, Hey, I saw this, this, and this, how are you going to fix it? You know? So how do you compartmentalize if you're a parent, you know, and, and help the athlete compartmentalize that failure or compartmentalize moments in a game that can be learning experience ultimately in the end. Sure. And you know, I can, I can speak on this as a, as a coach who's observed as someone who's experienced my parents. Um, but I cannot speak. I don't have an adolescent ad, uh, child who's experiencing some of these feelings right now. Um, but I know for my parents and I, um, it was okay. That's that's good. Let's go there. How, how did your parents do it when you were growing yeah, up? So, I mean, they were, they were always, it was never about, uh, the result. They never were like, we never got in the car afterwards and we never started with the results. It was just like, Hey, you know, just almost like, I didn't get to see you all day. Yes. I got to watch you play, but I, how's your day? How are you feeling? And like, if there was ever anything else going on in my life, it was almost like it was addressed first. And that ended up being the bulk of the conversation. Um, and I feel like sometimes people start the conversation in the opposite with like, well, you were three for two today or two for three today, mm-hmm. or you were zero for three today, or you had that error. Like it's a very results oriented conversation instead of a process oriented. I always realize that, that I, in, in some way that because they started with the process questions or they started with like, I don't know how you get to the results first. It almost programmed in my brain to start with that too. So my self-reflection when I got older and went to college was like, okay, how's like, let me go through like my mental checklist. How's everything else going that led to these results, you know? Um, But it was the other thing too, is they very much so made it known that I was not defined by the sport of softball and they enjoyed watching me play regardless if I sat the bench or regardless if I played well. Um, And I think that was probably very important because then my self view changed as well I think or at least developed into that where I was Cassie who played softball not Cassie the softball player and I think that was probably vital to setting the foundation for whatever else anything else could build on okay speaking of foundation how do you as a parent then more advice for parents here you're welcome (laughs) how do you how do uh, parents set that foundation for the conversation that they're going to have with their kid post game yeah you know what I have to imagine it's going to be different for certain athletes And, and even as I'm talking to an athlete um, I try to, I try to talk to them with what resonates with them first, where it's like, tell me about the game yeah. and you're just, you're listening almost like, almost like what you're doing now, right? You let's, let's ask questions. Let's listen. And then let's, let's not put my two cents in until I feel like they've exhausted what they have to say. And you're going to get an idea right away if they don't want to talk about it. And I think that is sometimes more valuable learning what the opportune time is to set, to talk and set that foundation. And you know what, sometimes you're in Jersey and you have a two hour ride home and the, and oh, just need, yeah, 
right? So maybe there needs to be a 30 minute buffer before you start talking about the game to kind of let some of those emotions dissipate a little bit. Um, That's, you know, that is, I think helpful. I, I also think too, my parents would honestly try to ask like, Hey, what teammate do you enjoy playing with? That was that was really helpful segues for them to realize, okay, Cassie's admiring this person's work ethic. Cassie's admiring this person's approach to the plate. And then they would kind of steer the conversation where it's like, okay, well, when you see so-and-so walk to the plate, like, what do you admire about them? And, and I'd bring it out. And they'd be like, well, I see that in you too. They'd, like, I see glimpses of that confidence you're referencing in you too. Like, it was just, it was a very neat tool. I don't know if they read that somewhere or what, but it was almost like, oh, you do? And they're like, yeah, like, you would never be able to recognize that confidence or swagger in her if you didn't experience that at least on some level yourself. And, um, you know, and then, you know, my dad might be like, Hey, remember that really good game you had in high school? He's like, I'm starting to see that, that same walk to the plate you had just again, something I was able to control. Not, wow. That was like the same double you hit. It was just things I could control. It was always commenting on things I could control. Neither one of us have children, but I can tell you it's going to be a lot easier than how our parents had it because, you know, you get into the car now and your car, you, know, you plug in your phone and you have that big screen in front of you that has all the apps, right? And you, you got your text messages, you got your phone calls and you've got your podcasts, you've got your radio. I mean, it's like an entertainment system now. So it's a lot easier. You don't have to have those conversations anymore if you're a parent. All right. Well, you, you know what? You know, it's funny. You don't want to. I, my, my fiance has is the sole parent of his two sons. So I will, you know, three weeks now I'll be technically a stepmom. And I was driving with the five-year-old today, this morning, and he was asking about what I do from 8.30. You know, he was like, he didn't understand why why the door's closed, why he can't come in. I was like, well, let's listen to it. And he wants to listen to the whole thing. He was like, oh, he's like, this is cool. And I was like, all right. <laughs> so, so I was there thinking you go. in my head, I'm like, maybe when you're older, instead of having to have a tough car, maybe if you're really, really pissed off after a game one day, I'll just uh, slide one of these podcasts. Throw on cross functionality. <laughs> yeah. Exactly. Apple, Google, Spotify. You know, you throw on really any podcast for that matter. You know, when I was a kid, all we had was like Mike, Mike and the Mad Dog on sports radio. And if they weren't on, well, I was getting an earful from my dad about how bad I did in my game that's hard that's gotta be i don't know i just you know what maybe males and females but you know what though i gotta tell you though yeah but there is a lesson in that Mm -hmm. it taught me what to do and what not to do someday as a parent so ultimately i did learn something it's fair it's fair yeah i i do boy did i pray that mike and the mad dog will be on though oh (laughs) so many times i do hope uh you know, even if I, it's knew I was shit out of luck on Saturdays, you know, that was, <laughs> I, I would have to have a good game of Saturdays and Sundays or I'll, you know, even if it's a uh, one parent who's listening, who maybe it just has a tool for a different approach or something that might help the athlete. Cause that doesn't, I'm not saying my parents had a perfect, they weren't batting 10 for 10. There were times they tried to take an approach to t- chatting with me after a bad game and they realized, Oh, that's not the right approach. But I appreciate them adapting and learning about it because that was probably the biggest thing that helped me. Honestly, it's probably helped me more as a coach than it has as a player to be able to talk to my athletes. Yeah. That's, that's a skill within itself. I would imagine trying as learning as a coach, because ultimately as a coach, you're a teacher. I don't want to miss, miss, you have, you have some, I think that's sometimes the best part of coaching is that teaching aspect. Right. Right. Well, next week, um, great job this week. Um, Episode 14, Owning Failure. Next week, we're going to talk about more hands-on planning your lessons as a coach. This should be mm-hmm. pretty interesting. I'm always fascinated with how coaches plan their lessons. I read a story once. Again, I'm going back to Nick Saban um, about how he, when he first got to Alabama, 
and they were not very good. They were playing in like the Independence Bowl or something. No disrespect to the Independence Bowl. I'm sure it's great for teams that, you know, for programs that need the money. But I I read this story, I forget if it was on ESPN.com, about how after that season he told his players, I never want to play in this um, F-word bowl again. And he sat down for like three straight months or whatever it was prior to spring camp, and he laid out practice plans for three consecutive years. Mm, three wow. months, it took him to three months to put together practice plans for three years and, and didn't really go into detail what those practice plans were. We're going to find out what goes into planning your lessons as a coach next week. Awesome. And don't forget the lab Epstein hitting podcast, by the way, starting late episode 118. That is our topic starting late at the plate. Mm. I didn't mean, I didn't mean it to rhyme and I, I am fully aware of how annoying that could be. So I apologize. It, works. Time. it works. That is, yeah. It's a horrible what do you got coming up. What do you got coming up at softball strength Academy? So softball strength, I'm actually headed to Alabama this Tuesday, Wednesday, Thursday uh, to begin filming for a documentary about the national championship team. Um, so that's been really cool to be a part of that production. Um, and then uh, and then just continuing to put out content about mental performance, timing and mechanics. Um, probably within the month, I'd say six weeks, we're going to have a huge drill library um, available for people um, over 500 drills all pro progressed, all organized um, to, so that you can really hone in on what I want to work on. This is the level of the athlete I want to work on. And, and these are the drills I can administer. Um, so that'll probably segue into what we talk about next week. Yeah. And don't forget too, you have online coaching. I do. Yes. So you can train no matter where you are. You can train with me remotely. We start off with a convo, figure out what works best for you. And then uh, we actually have our own app. So our company we founded nine years ago, Athletes Warehouse has its own app. You get your programming on there. You can communicate with us throughout the week and then uh, help you get better and at least know what you need to be doing throughout, you know, program by professionals. Yes, I 100% agree. That's kind of cool. <laughs> you have an app. What's the process of that like? Um, so thankfully, we got to do a lot of white labeling with a company, but we've had a lot of creative freedom with like, okay, this is what we want it to look like. This is what we want it to feel like. And then you trust people to build the back end. <laughs> yeah. yeah. It's so easy. Just yes. a push of a button, you got the app. For us, if you know, if you have resources allocated to take care of what it would cost and the time, it's mm -hmm. it's doable. Yeah. So. Well, thank you everybody for listening and watching. Again, subscribe Apple, Google, Spotify, whichever platform that you may listen to podcasts and watch the show Softball Strength Academy. And we will talk Softball Strength Academy YouTube page, and we will talk to you next week. Awesome. Thanks, Jim.